Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Frank Martin grew up in a family that raised and butchered their own hogs. Lately, he's noticed a revival of interest in home butchering. I was talking with one of my friends at work, and, and he's like, you know, they're talking like there might be a meat shortage, and, and he's like, we need to get us some hogs. Today's show is all about returning home to practice skills that helped our great-grandparents' generation survive the Great Depression and that have sustained many Appalachians for years. We learn about a special type of sour apple that's great for making applesauce early in the summer. I think uh, this is an apple that has sour powder in it. Mmm! He always wanted them when they were green and he used to say they had to be green enough to make a pig squeal. And how did a song written by two people who'd never even visited West Virginia become a worldwide anthem for the Mountain State? We hear the story behind Take Me Home Country Roads. You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Today's show is all about returning home. When I graduated from high school, I couldn't wait to leave and, and go somewhere new. Sound familiar? Molly Baker grew up in Somersville, West Virginia. After high school, she went to Berea College, and then she and her partner moved to New York City. When we first pulled into New York with our car crammed full of our things and our cat... <laughs> It was such a bizarre and exciting but scary moment. I remember thinking how incredibly loud it was and that everything was in motion. It was frightening, but it was after leaving New York, family circumstances sort of, sort of pulled us back home to West Virginia, that I realized how much I, I actually did miss those qualities of life that were absent in our uh, Manhattan living situation, how much I'd missed the opportunity to be alone with my thoughts or to spend quiet moments with people that were part of a community that you had known for a very, very long time. And I feel so privileged to be an Appalachian person with an Appalachian heart and something I know more about myself that I, I didn't know when I first left home. Molly Baker now lives in Lexington, Kentucky with her husband, Joe. For some reason, like Molly, timing and circumstances force you back, and only then do you realize how much you missed home. Others spend decades longing to return. There are many songs about that longing. One of the most famous is Take Me Home, Country Roads, a song that's come to represent the feeling of homesickness that many of us Appalachians know so well. It's been a worldwide anthem since its release in April 1971. The song is one of the things people across the globe connect with West Virginia. But there's a debate about whether the lyrics were even written about the state. This year marks the 50th anniversary for Country Roads. Roxy Todd's been talking with people about the stories behind the song and what it represents to people in the Mountain State. Almost heaven. West One night in 1970, Bill Danoff and his then-girlfriend Taffy Nivert were hanging out with John Denver, and they played a few verses from a song they'd been working on. Denver immediately said he wanted to record it, as Danoff recalls. It was sort of like an old movie, you know? Why don't, why don't we all do it together? And uh, I said, okay, well, we got to finish it. And he said, well, let's finish it. The three of them, Danoff, Nivert, and Denver, stayed up all night finishing the song. Knowing little about the state, Nivert pulled out an encyclopedia and looked up West Virginia. We kept just throwing out lines, and then we'd write down the ones that seemed to fit. They played it the next night at the cellar door, an iconic intimate venue in Washington, D.C. The people clapped for about five minutes straight. First time they'd ever heard the song, and you knew you had something because that doesn't, that just doesn't happen, you know. One of those in the audience was Andy Ridenour. At the time, Ridenour was a student at Concord College in southern West Virginia. I was on holiday break between Christmas and New Year's, 
along with some friends from West Virginia. My table, which was sitting right at the front of the stage, uh, and with my friends, we all went nuts with our West Virginia connections. And, and uh, quite frankly, everybody in the place went nuts. This wasn't the first time Ridenauer had seen Denver play. A couple months prior to the show at the cellar door, Denver played at Concord College. It was Denver's trip to the small town of Athens, West Virginia, that may have helped spark the hit single. He and his band flew into Roanoke, Virginia, and they had to drive over on old US 460, which a lot of it was a two-lane road, meandering through towns and parallel, running parallel to the New River. And when John and his band got out of the car, they commented on the roads. They were happy to have safely arrived. When that single was released later that following summer and became a big hit, John Denver sent us a copy of the album that he autographed, which he said, thanks for the inspiration. All my memories gather around her. It really does give folks an idea about what West Virginia is like. If you listen to the words of the song, that, that feeling that you get. But some say the song does a disservice because it mentions the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River, two geographical features that are mostly associated with Western Maryland and Virginia. While the river and mountains do touch a small portion of West Virginia's eastern panhandle, Danoff says he wrote most of the song during a drive through rural Maryland. I was just driving out in western Maryland, and it was kind of countryside that reminded me of my home upbringing in western New England. But Danoff says he does have a connection to West Virginia. Growing up, he spent many evenings listening to the Wheeling Jamboree from WWVA. Jamboree performers entertain folks not only in all parts of this country, but in Canada and even in the Arctic Circle. In the, in the bridge of that song, there's a, there's a line, uh, I hear her voice in the morning hour, she calls me. The radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling that I should have been home yesterday, yesterday. I'm thinking of that radio. I'm thinking of WWVA and heading toward that, that radio signal. So there, so there really was a, an early, an early an, a subconscious connection. And as for the geographical issue, when somebody pointed that out, Danoff came up with this answer on the fly. So I thought about it, and I said, well, the guy's going home to West Virginia. He's going through Virginia, and he's passing the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River. Blue Ridge Mountains, Sarah Morris is an English professor at West Virginia University. She's writing a book about country roads. She scoured the internet and read dozens of threads. People all over the world debate what this song is really about. So you can find people saying, well, it's, it's really about Virginia. It's really about Maryland. It was written in Maryland. It's really about Massachusetts because that's where Bill Danoff grew up. So I, I think lots of states want to own it. And lots of places across the world want to own it, which is why we see bands and musicians taking it up and changing the lyrics to match their homes. The song Country Roads has been recorded in at least 19 different languages and in countless different yeah, arrangements. Listen. Nobody owns the anthem more than West Virginians. The state bought the rights to the song so they could use it to promote tourism. West Virginia University plays it whenever they win a football or basketball game. West Virginia. Blue Ridge Mountains. 
When West Virginia Public Broadcasting put a call out on social media asking people to share stories about the song and what it means to them, we were flooded with emails, which then led to voice memos of people sharing their stories. We had Country Roads play as the last song at our wedding, and actually everyone that we know, all of our friends, every wedding we've been to in West Virginia, they've all also had Country Roads play at the last song at their wedding too. We begged our daddy to get it on 8-track so we could listen in the car and sing along together. It inspired me to save all the money that I earned playing the guitar or singing so that I could uh, afford the same guitar that John Denver played, which was a Guild F512, I still have it today. So it's kind of this cute little tradition that I've noticed amongst our friends or amongst people here in the state. Um, everyone just gets arm in arm and makes a big circle around the bride and groom in the middle, singing country roads at the top of our lungs. It's a great way to end the night. Morris says this song is emblematic of a nostalgia for the past and a desire for something just out of reach. These themes resonate strongly with many folks from West Virginia. There was this huge out-migration of West Virginians to work in industries outside of West Virginia in the 60s. West Virginia per capita lost more people in the Vietnam War than any other state. All of that was happening right around the time the song was released. So there was this overall mood of homesickness, not just for West Virginians, but also for our country. So the song was born into that. Homesickness is universal. Maybe that's why it resonates with people all over the world. Morris compares it to a concept in Welch culture known as hirif. It's this deep, internal, fundamental longing for a place we can never go. And I think there's an element of that in Country Roads, too. She says Country Roads is maybe about a longing for a place that never really existed in the first place. A place which our memories changed over the years. And during the pandemic, that nostalgia has grown even stronger for people, like Sonia Schaefer. She left West Virginia right after high school. She's traveled the world for work. Lately, though, that work has all been remote, so she felt the urge to come back. I could feel the magnetic pull taking me, taking me back, asking me why I left, asking me why I'm not home. Schaefer hired movers to bring her stuff across the country from L.A. and bought a one-way ticket to Lewisburg, West Virginia, where she grew up. She recorded this between flights that were taking her home. Well, today's the day. I'm on layover here in, in O'Hare with my cat. Uh, we made it. On our first leg from Los Angeles, we're going to board the flight to Lewisburg, West Virginia, here in about seven minutes. And really, it, it is it's country roads that take, take me home. I'm going home. It's been a long time coming. I slept in an empty apartment last night. I actually played the song a few times. Two weeks after the move, Schaefer says returning to West Virginia has been basically everything she'd hoped. She takes a walk to a nearby creek every day, and she's enjoying being called Honey and Darlin'. And when she called the DMV to get her new license plate, she says her heart was flooded with emotion when she heard the hold music. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Concord University, formerly Concord College, which was mentioned in that last story, is an underwriting supporter of Inside Appalachia. On our website, you'll find photos of the first performances of Country Roads from 50 years ago. And you can watch videos of people sharing their memories of the song. Find it at wvpublic.org. For some people, returning home means going back to a place. For others, it means connecting back to our traditions or homesteading roots. The coronavirus pandemic has made that desire even stronger over the past several months. We're finding that with a little more time on our hands, a lot of us turned to traditional skills and practices as one way of coping with the challenges. So we've baked bread or started a garden, and some folks here in Appalachia have returned to community traditions of raising and butchering livestock at home. Folkways Corps reporter Nicole Musgrave found two people in Floyd County, Kentucky, who are teaching others how to process meat at home. 
In eastern Kentucky and throughout the rural South, it was once common for families to butcher a hog every winter, an annual tradition known as Hog Killing Day. 45-year-old Frank Martin grew up in Langley, Kentucky, in a family that raised and butchered their own hogs. He lives on the same property today, and he remembers the feeling of waking up as a child on Hog Killing Day. The excitement of waking up that morning knowing that you, all your uncles were going to be coming over and your family members, everybody's going to get together. and The comparison to going somewhere that, that you've never been and you're so excited about it and you get there and it's as beautiful as you thought it would be. That's kind of like the same feeling come that morning. It's like, all right, let's go. We're, we're, we're killing all, you know what I mean? You, you, you've done all. And it, it had been 30 years since Frank felt that excitement of hog killing day. But this past spring, just after the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic, he decided to process a hog with his two sons. At the time, news outlets were beginning to report that meatpacking plants across the country were closing due to coronavirus outbreaks among workers. COVID-19 has left some shelves at grocery stores bare, and now there's a concern that meat shortages are possible. I was talking with one of my friends at work, and, and he's like, you know, there's, they're talking like there might be a meat shortage, and, and, you know, we're just in general conversation. He's like, we need to get us some hogs. While this initial conversation was prompted by reports about potential disruptions to the supply of meat, that wasn't Frank's primary reason for butchering a hog. With his two sons home from school because of the pandemic, Frank saw this as an opportunity to pass on the skills and the memories associated with home hog killings. I want, I want these boys to be exposed to this. I want to teach them that this is how their grandfathers got their meat. And that's one of the things that we did this for, is to show the boys that you can be independent and self-reliant in uncertain times, especially. For Frank's oldest son, Max, helping his dad gave him a whole new appreciation for how meat gets to the table. Knowing where your ham comes from. <laughs> I mean, you know that it comes from a pig, but I guess you don't really know until you do it, like how much work goes into it. Now, with the help he had from his sons, Frank has a freezer full of vacuum-sealed meat. That is the actual whole ham that, that we packaged. Here is, uh, which we're gonna fix these probably tomorrow. Those are ribs from where we processed it. And he's not alone. Frank has noticed that friends around Floyd County have a revived interest in processing their own meat. I've seen a lot of people looking for chickens this year. A lot of people asking if anybody has any hogs. So obviously this pandemic's created a, a circumstance where people's looking to do more of those traditional things. About six miles down the road in Hueysville, Kentucky, 34-year-old Misty Shepard also knows a lot about the hog-killing tradition. As an adult, she's continued her family's practice of processing meat at home. She butchers a hog every three to five years. For Misty, knowing how an animal was raised and worked up gives insight into how healthy the meat is. The way a hog looks is also important. The color, the fat content, how it wiggles when it's moving, the eyes and the skin color, make sure it's not pale, it's got to be pretty. It takes a lot. I mean, years of experience to be able to walk up and just say, that's good hog. <laughs> when looking for a good hog, Misty typically buys locally from people she knows in eastern Kentucky. But this year was different. With so many meatpacking plants closed, farmers were left overstocked and looking to sell their animals for cheap. Right now, where this virus is going on, these farmers are having to just kill their hogs because they can't sell them and they have new litters coming on and stuff. So these hogs actually come from out of state that we got. With the prospect of higher prices and bare shelves in supermarket meat aisles, Misty noticed others in the community taking advantage of discounted livestock. But this created another challenge to the local food supply. A lot of friends and people are buying hogs and buying cows and the slaughterhouses that did stay open in this area that did take the precautions and stuff are already booked. So now they have this hog and they can't get it killed. They can't get it worked up and they have no place to put it. So it's kind of like it's a huge burden on them. 
Over the past several months, people have reached out to Misty for advice on what to do with the animals they've purchased. A lot of her friends have the same regret and often say the same thing. I wish I paid attention. I wish I'd have paid more attention growing up, watching them do this. They remember certain parts of working up a hog or a beef or something like that, but they don't remember all the process. But Misty does remember all the process, including one of the final steps to butchering a hog, rendering the lard. Standing at her kitchen counter, Misty takes a slab of hog fat and cuts it up into small pieces. The pieces then go into a large aluminum pot to cook over low heat, where they transform from slick pink to crispy brown. As the fat cooks, it hisses and pops, releasing a golden liquid. This process of rendering lard produces two products, liquid lard and solid cracklings. Misty uses lard for cooking, baking, and canning, to make soaps and salves, and as a wood conditioner. She'll save the cracklings to add to cornbread. You can see it kind of looks a little bit like fried chicken crumbs. I don't like to render it out so much that your cracklings are completely hard. Once the fat is finished cooking, Misty strains the cracklings from the lard. She then pours the lard into a glass mason jar, where it'll sit on the counter for several days, turning from a golden liquid into a white solid. It's a lost art. I mean, you go to the store and you can buy processed lard out of containers, but you never see it change form. You never see it go from this slick, white, pink to a dark gold liquid and then turn back into a solid, beautiful, white color in a jar. So to see something change form is kind of like watching a caterpillar change into a butterfly. Misty now shares this artful process with others in a Facebook group that she started back in April. Hey guys, it's me. Yesterday we killed a hog, so today I'm just rendering out lard on top of lard on top of lard. So, it's never a dull day. Never. In the group, Misty posts tutorials that explain traditional skills, like how to butcher a hog and render the lard. For Misty, these are things she'd be doing regardless. But because of the pandemic, she's had extra time. I was out of work. And I had time, and I was doing this stuff anyways. And I'm like, okay, well, I can post, you know, some of what I do. And then people, like, took up and were Misty has a lot of skills to remain self-sufficient. And the pandemic has created an opportunity for her to teach them to others, the way she learned from her family growing up. So, that's all you do. I mean, there's work and labor put into it, but you know what you have. You know how it's been done. I put... Misty now has close to 500 members in her Facebook group. She not only shares how-to videos and recipes, she also sells items she makes, like soaps, salves, and balms, made from hog lard. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Floyd County, Kentucky. Rekindling homestead traditions like home butchering is one way some people are connecting back to their roots. Returning home to the land and to our families is another. Home can be complicated, and returning home can be complicated. But sometimes the time is just right to return. Carrie Roberts recorded her story from her family farm in Nicholas County, West Virginia. I recently returned to West Virginia after being in Pittsburgh, so just for like a year and a half, and this is probably my fifth attempt at coming back um, since I was 27, so that's been a decade and about five times that I've tried to come home, and I feel like every time it's the same reason. I come home is because uh, the family farm 
is here and uh, I get to feeling claustrophobic and very homesick when I'm away. And I guess what has changed the most, even since the last time I tried to live here, is myself. I've been working more on uh, figuring out how agriculture can fit into my life and getting more work experience in agriculture uh, in Pittsburgh. I was able to work at a tree nursery and um, as a park ranger and at a floral shop and those are all like natural resource or live goods related and I took some classes during the quarantine from Penn State Extension and that made me feel a little bit more prepared to come back and since coming back I've uh, started raising some poultry. Um, I have like 300 birds and um, I've been helping with the produce and and get ready to start a position. Uh, it looks like uh, it's going to be about a 45 minute commute but feeling pretty lucky to find work here and stay busy on the farm and be back and uh, it's a great relief to not be homesick and to uh, know I'm where I should be. Uh, I dabble in songwriting and there's this chorus that keeps coming up when I'm away and it's Am I doing my best or am I watching TV? And my best, the best thing I could do is definitely be here and working with my family and working the land and when I'm not here I'm watching TV you know and uh, yeah I just couldn't do it anymore so I came home. Thanks Carrie for sharing your story of returning home. How about you? Did you leave Appalachia? What did you miss? Send us a message to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Up next, a wave of drug overdoses actually confirmed that the decision to come home was the right one for one woman. We'll also learn about a unique apple variety that grows in southern West Virginia and southwestern Virginia and why some people are trying to save it. It's a, it's a dying breed. That's the sad part about it. That's coming up in just a minute. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Walking down a dirt road on my way back home Looking for a place I can call my own Spent too many years trying to find my way And I'm taking the dirt road home today Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Homecoming and the return to school in the fall may bring to mind foods like apple strudel or cider making. But did you know that apples are more than just fall treats here in Appalachia? Summer varieties of apples are an important ingredient for some applesauce or breakfast apple recipes in my neck of the woods. Some folks call them June apples, and there's even an old-time song with the same name. You might also hear them called June transparent apples, or your grandpa may have even called them early transparents. The growing season and flavor of this fruit set it apart. Generations of Appalachians have kept these apple trees alive. But as Folkways reporter Connie Kitts discovered, these early apples are now at risk of disappearing. The early June transparent apple is a small, green, tangy fruit that grows in few places in the world, two of which are in southwest Virginia and southern West Virginia. It blossoms and buds in the spring, putting it at risk of a late frost. This past spring, neighborhood kids in Bluefield, Virginia, awaited the apples that survived May's late freeze. Can you help us get those three apples? Can you oh, help me? They're not ready to fall yet. It's a big one. Can I have one? 
Can I have it? I think at, this is an apple. It has sour powder in it. Mm. The skin of the apple is paper thin. The flesh inside is crisp and white. Susie Webb is a retired postal worker who grew up eating these apples. Her late father, Frank Johnston, had two well-known trees in the area. Susie says her dad, Frank, loved the apple's distinct, sour taste. No, he never wanted it later when it was ripe. He always wanted them when they were green, green, and he used to say they had to be green enough to make a pig squeal. There's about a three-week window to pick the apples before they rot. It's common to pick them green. That's when the apple skin is thinnest, so peeling the apple isn't necessary to make applesauce or fried apples. The skin just cooks down. Georgie Durham, who's 90 years old, remembers eating off these trees in Bluefield in the 1940s and 50s when they were popular backyard trees. And I believe the skin was the reason because transparent because the skin was so thin on the apple. They wish you could almost see through them. As the apples mature and turn slightly yellow, the skin toughens, and that's when people peel the apple. But the flesh inside becomes sweeter with a mealy, crumbly texture, and Georgie says this is when it's excellent for making applesauce. Well, I, I, I do know one thing. The early transparent, you couldn't beat it. It's number one, Betty, for uh, cooking, for applesauce, for, well, pies, anything you wanted to make. The early June transparent apple tree is not native to this region or this country. In 1870, the United States Department of Agriculture imported it from Russia and the Baltic states, both places with cold climates. Consumer horticulture specialist Mira Bulatovich Danilovich is with West Virginia University Extension. She says central Appalachia has more in common with the Baltics than you might think. The nearest neighbor to the Baltic countries is uh, Finland, just to get a perspective. So whatever West Virginia lacks in latitude, it actually gains in altitude. Uh, Believe it or not, we have quite similar climates. In fact, both Bluefield, West Virginia and Bluefield, Virginia are at some of the higher elevations in the region. So in these colder climates, the early transparent began to thrive around the 1930s. But Mira says there's possibly a more important factor she's seen in the survival of heirlooms like these. They become neighborhood trees, and the community knows the apple's distinct taste. It becomes something people grow up with and share. Tradition is the main reason why we still have a thriving production of some of these heirloom varieties. People remember what their grandparents and great-grandparents had, and they want that apple to survive, you know, to be preserved for the next generation, too. And part of that next generation is Rebecca Perry and her husband, Willie. They live in Bluefield, West Virginia, near early transparent trees that their families picked for years. Becky and Willie like to cook fresh transparents for breakfast, just like they had when they were young. Okay, my apples are all washed, diced, and cut up. I'm getting ready so you can hear the sizzling of the apples going into the pan to fry. Have my biscuits in the oven. Do you hear that? They're ready, and you put a little bit of water in there. And to make that baby food thin applesauce, Becky says wait till the apples ripen more, peel the skin off, slice, and cook in a pot with just a scant bit of water. Down the road from the Perrys, back on the Virginia side, is Lonnie Johnson, a longtime local with an early transparent tree. He bought his property 30 years ago, and the tree was neglected. He says these trees can get unruly without regular maintenance. It wasn't taken care of. Uh, everything was all ran down there, thing. so I, I started getting it trimmed, and I had it trimmed, and I put fertilizer around it. It took off, man. Ever since, Lonnie and his wife slice and freeze the apples to have them year-round. There's nothing better than snow flying and good morning uh, cooked apples with biscuits. Nothing like it. (laughs) It makes springtime just pop right in your head. But lately, there aren't as many producing transparent trees as there used to be. The sale of farms, new construction, and property abandonment are all factors, Lonnie says, as well as aging trees and lack of care. It's a, it's a dying breed. That's the sad part about it. 
That's the reason I, I want to get a couple more started. Someone who's eager to help out is Junior Crockett, who owns a business just down the road. He grew up in the 1970s with a family orchard that was later cut down. So his hobby is finding and saving some of the area's old apple trees by grafting them. He uses a notching and taping technique to attach part of an old tree to a new one. So it's not that hard to do. You make your own trees. That's the only way you get a true to parent apple. Next spring will be Junior's first attempt at grafting an early June transparent tree. I just like it because it's therapeutic. I love history, love history, and that's part of history. Only thing for me, I don't have a young apprentice to take over to learn. Meanwhile, the kids at Lonnie Johnson's home church are picking up his love of the early June transparent apple. I have a little boy in uh, the Sunday school, and uh, he calls me Apple. Every time he sees me, he wants me to pick him up, and then he'll look at me and say, Apple. <laughs> so his mother said that he renamed me. My name is Apple now. <laughs> God didn't make little green apples, and it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. And it turns out God didn't make too many little green apples this year. Not many blossoms survive the unusually late spring freezes. Tree owners in the region say there were only about a handful of smaller, pickable apples on each tree. So you can bet they're guarding the apples in their freezer from last year. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Kitts in Bluefield, Virginia. God didn't make little green apples, and it don't sow in Minneapolis when the winter comes. Today we've heard several people talk about returning home to Appalachia. But what about folks who are moving here for the first time? Since the COVID pandemic forced more of us to work from home, some people making do in cramped apartments in big cities have been asking themselves, if I can work from anywhere, why am I living here? So there's been a migration out of city centers and into suburbs and small towns. Lord knows we got plenty of those around here. Carol Lofton caught up with some folks who've recently moved to the Mountain State. For the past 12 years, Mila Pallison has spent 20 hours of her week just riding the train to and from the city. Pallison and her husband, Ken McGill, have lived in Central Valley, New York, about 45 minutes north of Manhattan, since 2008. She works in advertising, and he's a freelance writer. He had been working from home for years, while she had been going into the office most days. But in March, they both started working from home due to the coronavirus pandemic. And so very quickly, like within a day, we, 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 we discussed it and we're like, we need to move um, because the taxes here are very high. Our property taxes at this at this house are $12,000 a year. They started looking at where they wanted to live. And so we started looking at different areas, and we eliminated Georgia and, no and North Carolina and South Carolina and Florida because it's a little hot and hurricane-y for our taste. Um, and then we finally settled on West Virginia and made the decision, like, we made the decision on a Tuesday. The following Wednesday, I was down there putting an offer on a house. They were able to buy a home in Charleston with cash pulled from their retirement. McGill says once their New York home sells, they'll put the money back in that account. Not having to pay for New York taxes and other living expenses will be a game changer for them. Now, I understand you have issues in that state. I get that. But I'm also thinking if there's a wave of us coming down there, I mean, we, we might be part of a wave that drives West Virginia's economy forward. We're going to be renovating. We're going to be buying appliances. We're going to be painting. We're going to be doing all sorts of, you know, investment um, in our new home. And that'll go straight into the local economy. McGill and Pallison are not anomalies, says Jessica Louts with the National Association of Realtors. We're seeing that people not only want a less dense neighborhood, they want less overcrowding within their own particular home. So they need more personal space, but they also are looking for a place with a yard or acreage, a place where you can get fresh air without having to worry about your neighbors who could be in an attached apartment or condo building as well. 
Loud studies demographics and home buying trends across the country. She says the pandemic has opened a lot of doors for some buyers. I actually think that it might expand the American dream to some people. If you can take advantage of low interest rates right now, and perhaps you can look at a more affordable place to move and have a bigger home than perhaps a crowded city center, this could open up a lot of opportunities for people to purchase their first home, to be able to raise perhaps their family in a larger single family home than they could have imagined. For decades, West Virginia has been losing population due to people moving away. It's a problem politicians have been talking about for years. But the coronavirus pandemic actually may present a unique economic opportunity. And I think West Virginia has a lot of potential and we need to just start to recognize this potential and really start to market ourselves to remote workers. That's John Deskins, director of West Virginia University's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. People see potential to to live in a less congested environment, in a lower cost of living environment, in an environment where they can enjoy some of the best outdoor recreation opportunities in the country with whitewater rafting, rock climbing, mountain biking, etc. And they can still work their normal jobs in a big city. It can be a real win-win for a lot of people in a lot of cases. And it can be a win for their employer, too. I mean, it saves businesses a lot of expense. They don't have to have that downtown office space that that carries with it a big expense. And in many cases, workers prefer it as well. They do the same amount of work that they did, but they avoid the commute. And I think West Virginia has a lot of potential, and we need to just start to recognize this potential and really start to market ourselves to remote workers. But currently, remote work is only possible in West Virginia's major cities that have access to broadband. This remote work discussion is only relevant in a few areas in West Virginia. Most areas of West Virginia, this this discussion has no relevance for most of West Virginia geographically. For places like Pendleton County or Pocahontas County, where the internet is just lacking, they have to bring in the internet first before they can really participate in this discussion. And the window for participating, he says, maybe right now, as the pandemic is still in the forefront of people's minds, pushing them to rethink how they want to work and live. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Carol Lofton. COVID has changed our lives in many ways. On today's show, we're talking about home. For some of us, the pandemic has meant returning home or moving back in with family. For Jeannie Harrison of Huntington, West Virginia, It didn't take a pandemic to make her want to come home. And when she got there, she found a reason to help the people in her hometown. This might sound cliche, I don't know, but I don't remember ever feeling like I fit in in West Virginia my entire childhood. I used to say, as soon as I turn 18, I'm getting out of here. Well, it didn't work out that way. And as as these plans, when you're a kid, (laughs) rarely do. But I was given the Promise Scholarship and able to go to Marshall, which ended up being such a blessing. I I really did like Huntington, and Huntington started to feel like home. But I still wanted to broaden my horizons and live somewhere else. I wanted new experiences and still felt like I didn't quite fit. So I applied for a graduate program at Georgetown in D.C. It was interesting, though, because my West Virginia roots followed me to Georgetown. There was a day when we were practicing for our interviews, for our internships, and a professor told me that one of my answers was pretty folksy (laughs) and that I shouldn't be so folksy in my interview. And when I took offense to it, My classmates found it funny, and then my nickname at Georgetown for the rest of my career there was folksy. And I think that if you're not from Appalachia, you don't understand what that means and how harsh that can seem, because there was a a bias and a stereotype against me because I was from Appalachia. And I started craving nature. I started really seeing that I was in the concrete jungle. Seeing trees is so rare. But I started like reading about foraging for medicinal plants and edible weeds. <laughs> and I even started food bombing, which is where you plant food 
seeds, like, you know, for fruits and vegetables. We did this in our apartment complex. They had a lot of space that was mulched and kind of set for decorative plants, but they didn't plant anything in it. So we would plant squash. And I remember we had this giant spaghetti squash and we were all so proud of it. Everyone in my apartment building <laughs> was like committed to the success of the squash plant. And right as, I mean, it was probably a week from being ready to harvest. They, they tore it out. They tore out the entire plant roots and all because, I mean, it wasn't allowed. <laughs> we were we were guerrilla gardening and they tore it all out and it was heartbreaking. <laughs> and I think it was in that period of time that I decided that I needed to go home. I needed to be around green space again. So I talked to my husband who was going to go to graduate school anyway, and we were just ready. So we packed up our little car and we, we were gone. And as we drove under the Welcome to West Virginia sign, I cried. I, I really, <laughs> really cried. <laughs> Tears of joy. And it was right as we were coming home that 28 people overdosed in the public housing complex at Markham Terrace in Huntington. It felt like a sign from the universe <laughs> because... We couldn't hide from the fact that there was such a problem with addiction in our community. We, we didn't want to hide from it anymore. It seemed like there was so much energy around helping. So I founded an urban farm in Huntington, and we called it Grow Huntington. And from that, we developed a little community, and, and now we have a fellowship for people who are impacted by addiction, whether they're in addiction or recovery or have friends and family struggling. And we build this community around personal growth and uh, connection to nature. Now I'm the wellness coordinator at Marshall University. I came home. I came home fully. I came home to my state and to my college. <laughs> and it feels so good to be back. And I hope that for the young students who feel like they don't quite fit here, they can find a little bit of belonging with us. I think that it's from those really strong roots that we develop the strength to explore the world. And maybe sometimes we come home after that, and maybe sometimes we stay gone. Thanks, Jeannie, for your story. I know what it's like to feel like you just don't belong at home or... At college. Now we recognize the nostalgia kind of messes with history. It makes us remember things a little bit rosier than they may have actually happened. If you'd known me back when I was in middle school, I would have taken offense if you told me I would stay right here in southern West Virginia. Now don't get me wrong, I loved the people and mountains where I grew up. I loved the wisdom my granny taught me to be tough, to be strong and resilient, as most of us Appalachian women are, deep down. But oh, how I longed to leave for the big city, to make it on Broadway. That was my big dream. I don't know how I'd explain things to that 13-year-old girl, that I've learned there are things here in West Virginia that are worth spending a lifetime learning more about, that feeling rooted to a place as old and ancient as these hills. Well, that's become important to me over the years. And while I still support my daughter's dreams of finding her way on stage— I hope that I've shared a little bit of my love and appreciation for our home so she always knows where she can return to. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. Walking down a dirt road on my way back home Looking for a place I can call my own Spent too many years trying to find my way And I'm taking Cabin in the tall, tall pines. Dear 
mama that I left behind Sweetheart, friends, and loved ones that I long to see And this dirt road will carry me back home This dirt road will carry me Up the holler on a hillside there's a little piece of land We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Southern Coalfields Reporting Project, which is supported by a grant from the National Coal Heritage Area Authority. Special thanks to the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also download or subscribe to the Inside Appalachia podcast or listen to all of our stories. The podcast is also available wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Our music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, John Wyatt, John Harrod from his recording with Apple Shop's June Apple Records, the late Wade Ward, and also John Denver. Also, a quick note here to thank our colleague Emily Allen, who called up the state of West Virginia's tourism office to get a recording of their hold music. West Virginia Tourism Office, can I help you? Hi, uh, my name is Emily. I'm with Public Broadcasting. Sorry, I was transferred here to get, um, it's weird, but we're recording the um, hold music. Um, is that, would it be possible for you to try to um, transfer me again so I could still record that? Somebody transferred me here just to do that. Um, record our hold music? Yes. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Yesterday